Girls Come and This Week. May is coming right around the corner. I love this song. I feel like it dictates every month possible. Yeah, there they are. And uh, Simon and Garfunkel. And my guest now, of course, Mike Meyer. You might have uh, heard of that band. Any favorite songs from Simon and Garfunkel? Mike Meyer. Yeah, what did I say? I think you said Meyer, but then again, we have hearing issues. Well, Mike Myers is on with me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. You know, Alex, sometimes I don't like me. Huh. Why is that? I can just be a real jerk. Oh, it's all good. Well, uh, well, uh, today I'm going to have someone from the Cornell Review, which is, you know, the, the school paper at Cornell University, or one of the papers there. I'm very excited about that. So That is, that is awesome. That's great. And he is he actually transferred from a SUNY school to Cornell, and I'm kind of curious what the transition's like going from a, a state-operated school to Ivy League. I mean, there's got to be a difference there, right? <laughs> I... Uh... Poison Ivy, so you're somebody who is, that reminds me of a story, my brother was camping, okay, go ahead. Uh, Well, well, tell me the story now, you got us hooked. Well, he, uh, he he grabbed some leaves, he was out of commission for quite a while. Oh, right, because he got all the rashes and all that fun stuff. Yeah, he, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Man, remember that was like a concern, now no one even talks about that anymore, with all of this going on. Yeah, that used to be like a big thing. Don't touch it. It might be fun. Now, no, but now it's like COVID's topped even that. It's like, well, don't go out. And uh, like poison ivy is very minuscule compared to COVID at this point. Um, yeah, the COVID thing. I'm like, I'm, I'm really struggling with. Um, I apologized to somebody yesterday on Facebook, and uh, basically what I ended up saying is, you're you're right. Nobody should tell somebody else what to do or not to do, and yet that's exactly what this person was saying, that I shouldn't do something, and someone this morning said, I have quite a gift of sarcasm. I'm like, what? Because hmm. my point was kind of sort of, you know, if you could look at what you're saying, you're kind of guilty of the same thing. Wait, say that one more time. Okay. So I had made a comment. Oh, it was about today the uh, farmer's markets are going to open in Iowa. Oh, that's right. And yep. That to me is an exciting thing. Well, then I was like, oh, sure, Mike, you just want to see babies die and old people die. And, and it really got ugly. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons I think um, I'm getting a little choked up. I think it's really important for me to kind of stay away. A buddy of mine this morning said, you still got a running motorcycle? And I said, yep. And he said, you need some wind therapy. Huh. Meaning you got to get on that motorbike and roll. Yeah. And uh, I guess my, my wife, I said, what's the, what's the problem with me? And she said, you're just highly sensitive, more so now than you have been in a long time. Well, do you think that's because of the time we're in? Is that what's kind of building it up to, like that, that anxiousness or whatever you want to call it? And it's bringing out ugliness, and I don't like the I don't like that brought out in me, and I know it's in there. What does the shirt say? I love that. Where the healing begins. Oh, um, it's uh, the the wound the wounds healing center or something. And I had MRSA on the back of my hand so bad that I was in the hospital for three days. Wow. And then when was that? Oh, maybe. Three or four years ago, I mean, it was really, ah, uh, it, it was, I got pictures, I can send you pictures. Well, I don't know if I want to see that, but that's the one in 2009, right? The H1N1, or is that a different thing? No, this is something that you, it's some, some methacetylestrogen resistance, something to something. Mm. And you got it on your off. hand. That's. Yeah, it started off as a little, uh, it's, it, it, there's a lot of it in hospitals, nursing homes. And uh, I started off as just like a, a little itchy, kind of like a little pimple. Mm. Oh, my gosh. It turned into an ugly mass, and they had to lance it and shove some tweezers in there and twirl it around. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's, 
<laughs> it's a little early, but we can get through it. Um, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Are you? Is everything in that fine now? Obviously, right? I mean, there's no chance it could come back, or? Oh well. It, oh, oh my gosh, you're bringing up some good stuff. I, I'm probably, I'm probably a Mercer carrier. Huh. It's not funny. Why is that though? How how is that possible if they healed it? Because there are things that we carry around that uh, it's like somebody that's um, HIV positive. It doesn't necessarily mean they have AIDS, right? Okay, sure, sure. That's so true. So, and they and they actually do the test by swabbing your nose and you care I'm a MRSA carrier I just need to die oh stop you don't need to die <laughs> but I tell you one thing that that H1N1 flu knocked out my senior year of competition at these games for physically challenged because we we were in a school with kids who were very fragile they they had very fragile immune systems and they did not want to risk us participating with the other kids if there was a chance that we someone had. I think someone in our school had it actually, so that's why they canceled our our time there. But that's how serious it got with the H one N one. I mean, it was bad in two thousand nine. Well, uh, my wife just found out. I think it was yesterday or the day before that uh, one of her brothers has it. And that's the other thing we're not talking about is that there are other diseases still happening, and and, and they, they should be treated. <laughs> He's got the he's got the COVID. Oh, he's got COVID. Okay, but even so, Mike. He also works in a uh, meatpacking plant. Well, that's the other thing. Uh, uh, There was a plant in North Dakota, that or South Dakota in Sioux Falls that had to close down because the whole plant had gotten gotten it. It's like, how does that happen? But I guess because it's all it's communal there, right? So. And that's what drove the numbers up here in Iowa like crazy in one day. And the more, obviously, the more positive, you know, tests that come back, it's like, oh, my gosh, if we didn't test, oh, we only have 10 cases. If we test, oh, my gosh, we have 10,000 cases. We have a serious problem. Folks, I, I just, I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> I'll be all right. See, when he does that, I notice it's fake crying, so I'm not that too concerned. But I get what you're saying. It's logic, though. If the tests keep going up, the numbers will keep going up, or they might start going down. I don't know. We just have to see how that goes. In the meantime, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to be wise, but I'm not going to live in fear. And this gal got upset because she took that as, you shouldn't, you know, don't live in fear. Look, if you want to, that's fine. That would be my sarcasm coming out, but I didn't go there. I apologized instead. It's somebody I know. I was just kind of like, wow. So I'm best off just uh, isolating from the whole world. <laughs> no, no, we're not best off isolating from the whole world. I will tell you that much. I don't know. I It's getting a little tiring also waking up and it's groggy outside. It's like, come on. Give me a consistent few days of sunshine right now. Groggy. So the outdoors can be groggy. You're a fascinating young man. I like that descriptive. Now here it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And of course it is beautiful to just wake up and see the outside. I get that part too. But internally it's like, can we get some more days of sun or is this going to be cloudy most of the day when we're in? Yeah, just kind of like, okay, well, we're inside again, and it's dark, it's gray out there. Why? Why can't we just look at something nicer? Well, uh, how can believers be in the world but not of it? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm excited to be alive. We are, it is exciting to do this every day, and um, I think I'm going to get well, a new... I'm excited to see you every day, that's not oh. what I said. Don't, don't misconstrue <laughs> This is so much easier, because I tell you what, we're not we're not talking over each other. It's like I can literally see you finishing your thought process. And you can see the receding hairline. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, 
see well, you next week. So, um, I gotta ask you though, you told me off air you had a bit of a relapse. What happened? I, I don't know, I, I fell off the wagon. I wasn't, I did really well with not being on Facebook for 24 hours and it was wonderful. And then yesterday morning I got on there and I ended up, I OD'd. It mm. was, it, it was horrible. Mm. I'm sorry about that, Michael. It's just very negative. I'm just thinking in my head, I should create a separate Twitter for my show page now. Show now. I think that's what I'm going to do. Random thought, um, but... Was that a random thought? It was, but I feel like I want to I wanna just post it out there, but I'm going to put it on my own personal page, not my regular Twitter page, if that makes sense. I, um... Oh, here we go. Here's, here's a, here was a, a comment. I printed all these off. Uh-huh. You know, farmer's market to open Monday. Hooray, everybody. Please be optimistic, be wise, and don't live in fear. And Mystique Mains said, that's great. I'm going to have to tell everyone in healthcare, don't worry. Tell your dying patients to be optimistic. Can you see why I just don't even like to see this? I don't want to. That's just nasty. Yeah, who would want to see that, you know? And, uh... Oh, I would, obviously, because I'm a hate-filled, Trump-supporting, Jesus-loving, son-of-a-motherless-goat. I don't know what I am. Oh, man. Well, no, I, I had an issue with my comment, with comments coming on something I wrote about the NPR link I told you about. Yes, I would like to know more about that sometime. Uh, I mean, and someone was like, oh, this, you know, people were kind of trying to discredit it. And I'm like, well, that's real facts right there. 30 people did call reporting disinfectant thing after Trump said it. But anyway, the fight between a couple of my friends got bad and it just was like, come on, we're old, we're, we're old adults. We're adults here. You know what I mean? We're not 16 year olds. And this is the problem. Facebook has made us all some sort of adolescence again. So can you understand my seriously thinking? It's it's like an it's like an addiction. My seriously thinking about just it, it's not good for me. And I can understand why you don't want to be on it. And I wish I I didn't have to be on it sometimes, but I have. Why do you have to be on it? Well, because I've got pages that I still monitor for show and then other stuff. Oh. And okay. you cannot do that without being logged in. I don't think so. So if you lock in, you could be locked in. Like if I deactivate my account, I wouldn't be able to get back to the station pages I manage and all that. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It sucks to be you sometimes. And then I just love, <laughs> and then I just love posting what my thought process is. It's like I become like I, I feel like I channel Trump, and then I just have to say whatever's on my mind. It's just kind of interesting how I feel that. You channel Trump. I well, no, not the way I. Not the thoughts I say, but the way I say it, I feel come off as if Trump's typing it. Just because we both have that compulsive, we need to post our thoughts now type of mentality. Yes. Mentality. Yeah. And I think I need to. I think that's an addiction that maybe I uh, maybe I should replace that with uh, Everclear. What's Everclear? Uh, One hundred ninety proof alcohol. I'm kidding. Oh. I am kidding. Oh, you people, lighten up. <laughs> hey, I tell you one cool thing, and then I'll let you go for your show prep. Um, Ed Delgado and I are going to kind of do the same thing before his show tomorrow night, so I'm trying to see how the handoff works with him and uh, his show. So, we I just... think that's great. I love your idea. The concept is, is just amazing. And the fact that you know Steve Dace. Yeah. I used to do SRN with with a radio station years ago. Our connecting is I I, I all right. I'm just going to be honest, which is the best way to be. It's a god thing. This is cool. This is very cool. Are you kidding me? And I I forgot to ask you. Um, what is on your show today? What do you got today? Um, in the world, but not of it. Hmm. Or to be in the world, but not of it. Or just. In other words, we can't play God, right? That's kind of what you're saying. No, no, 
it's not that we can't play God, it's that we're kind of sort of passing through, and yet and yet to have titanium kahunas is important because people are ugly and nasty, and I'm one of those people at times, and so it's like, okay, I need to be more like Jesus and less like me. Okay, I'll tell you one thing that you just uh, <laughs> inspired me to play. Um, by Frankie Lane, Wayfaring Stranger, where he says, I'm only passing through, you know, uh, I'm going to play that in between, in between guests. Cause this is, you just inspire me because it's exactly what you're talking about. Like we're just passing through here, trying to get back home one way or the other, uh, later in life. What's the name of the song? Wait, the Wayfaring Stranger by Frankie Lane. Well, there you go. I guess that might be online too. So it's such a great song and he's he's i just love frankie lane i don't know if you listen to him but his songs are high noon was great rawhide how can you not love that one either but is that yep very very cool okay frankie lane songs oh see what's happened already you've inspired me Well, so it's like, I'm only going over Jordan, I'm only going home, or something like that. It's just a great song. And what you were saying is reminding me of that, because we're all kind of passing through and and doing what we can in the process. Wow, this is fascinating. Yeah, exactly. And and for me, it's kind of, and loving myself might mean a little more social media distancing. You need to extend the uh, <laughs> you need to extend the date like uh, the guy you need to extend your guidelines, Mister. Today is today is the second twenty four hours, and I promised the wife, and when I promise, I just got to stay off of there. That's why I'm glad this is working with a phone because I don't have my other computer set up. I was just thinking, you know what? You should do like a press a Trump kind of briefing, extending the guidelines to your social media distance. <laughs> Uh, got wonderful ideas, and some of them That's don't make sense. I know, I know. But. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. In fact, that makes so much mental sense for me that it's. Uh, you just put uh, on a suit and go live and say, "I'm extending my guidelines for social media distancing." Any questions from the press? <laughs> no suit. No suit. All right, no suit. No suit. Uh, just a Jesus shirt or something. Like God's, like my favorite T-shirt. I. I Ended up finding one on Facebook. It says, God's last name isn't damn it. Ooh, I like that. It's so true. It's not, though. It's not. No. And yet so many people say it. You know, it's kind of like, why? And I and I have to admit, I did that once. I got really mad. I was trying to find something in my room. And I said, I, I think that's what I said. And I said, Lord, forgive my French. And he said, my child, that's not French. <laughs> now he didn't really say that but it's like no that's an excuse michael you don't you don't need there's certain and then get this real quick and i, I can do this real quick yeah go for taking, it taking his name in vain isn't just using his name as a cuss word it's saying that i'm a follower and yet i'm living like the rest of everybody else mm. mm-hmm. isn't that in, sen- in a sense taking his it's like using his signature on your life, and yet your life is just. It, I've got issues. Well, but then at the same time, he was among us. I mean, I, he never cursed that I know of, but he was human. You know, he was human just like we are. Except he never said Jesus Christ about himself. I don't know. Maybe he did. I just I don't see that anywhere. So who knows? I think he did have um, B.O. Body I don't know, but I do know one thing that he had a um he did have a streak of, you know, I'm not happy right now and he flipped over the tables in the market in this temple. And so he showed us that it's okay to not totally be woohoo all the time because he wasn't either actually. Well, the you know, meek and mild meekness is power under control. Right, right. This is like a stick of dynamite. It's power, but it's not going to do anything destructive or something non-destructive, useful until you ignite it. Yeah. Hmm. And, and and Jesus could have 
done all kinds of stuff. He really had a hard time with the religious people. He really I did. Need the, I need to make up with a pastor friend of mine today. I know I need to do that. But it is incredible how he had called out those who said we're godly, but we don't like what he's doing. Like he called all those people out, and it was this the priests and the scribes. It was very interesting. Yes, and I guess for me, it's looking at myself, and then I don't know. There's just there's so much to think about, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mike, I'll let you think on that. I know you gotta get going to show prep, so we will talk to you tomorrow about the same time, right? I think he is. Lord willing, amen. And we will see you then. And by the way, in honor of you today, I will play some Frankie Lane because I just, I love the song and now you inspire me to start uh, to play it today. And Spreaker's great about doing the whole uh, songs. Like they don't really copyright, they don't they don't really monitor it, I don't think, right? Not if they do, it's, no, they don't. And that's one of the reasons I'm sticking with Spreaker. Um, and I got, you know, it's coming up. May is my renewal date, so it's time to put some money aside. Hey, I can use my COVID-19 money. Yeah, and by the way, we're getting the letter from President Trump about the money. Did you see that? A letter is coming to us from Trump himself about uh, about it all, I guess. So that'll be interesting to see. No kidding. I'll send you that link as well. I'll, I'll have to find it. I, You know what's funny? I get more on my phone app notifications than I do on the TV. It's kind of weird, but it's just how life is nowadays. Yeah. I'm going to check my informed delivery today and see what's coming in the mail. You do that. All right. I will talk to you later, um, Mike Thank Myers. You, and we'll see you tomorrow morning. Have a great show. All right. 9 a.m. Radio Hope. Got to tune them in. We'll be right back on Keep It Real with Alex Garrett. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger I'm traveling this world of woe And there's no sickness, no toil and trouble In that fair land to which I go I'm going there
Okay, cool. All right, well, thank you to uh, Mike Myers, Radio Hope, for joining us to kick off another edition of Keep It With Alex Garrett. Man, I've been doing this live since, what, a couple weeks ago, and the train just keeps on rolling, and now this train rolls into Cornell University. My goodness, I've got a friend there, Mr. Joe Silverstein, Silverstein USA. Thanks for coming on. This is actually your first time on the podcast, and yet we've known each other for a few years now, right? That's right, Alex Garrett. How you doing? It's an honor to be on the show. We're doing okay. I mean, it's a little groggy out, but hey, we're living, we're doing, we're, we're podcasting, and you've got a huge uh, gig you've got now at Cornell University. I've got to ask you, though, this is your, what, third school, so you're you're in college, and when you were doing radio, you were just starting college. At AM970 Answer, you were just starting college, and now you're at Cornell. Tell us your journey to Cornell University. Yeah, it was a hell of a journey. So I always knew I wanted to go to a great school, but I never really took it seriously enough. I sort of, you know, I'm still, I still have a big ego, self-admittingly, but, um, you know, I'm, I try to recognize that now. So in high school, I sort of just assumed that I would get accepted to one of these Ivy League schools without putting in the effort. I was a good student, but I didn't fully dedicate myself. So I started off going to St. John's, and that was during my time at AM970. I was local. Um and nothing against St. John's, but it wasn't what I wanted to do, and it really wasn't, you know, on par with what I always saw myself being and doing, and it was really the first time in my life that I had to deal with the fact that my reality didn't meet my expectations, and I wasn't meeting my goals in a, in a massive and dangerous way, because, you know, that's something where if you fall off, it's hard to get into, you know, to transfer into an Ivy League school. So I said, okay, what am I going to do? So originally the plan was I'll stick it out in St. John's for two years and then try to transfer into uh, Cornell or another Ivy League school. I ended up narrowing it down to Cornell because they have a lot of good things. They let you double major, so I'm doing economics and government, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But so anyway, though, so I did that, and I didn't really like St. John's, and I started to really dislike it, um, especially after the radio show ended and most of my friends had gone away upstate to college. So I said, okay, this isn't going to last for two years. I'm not staying in St. John's. So then I said, all right, where could I transfer to that's a decent school? And I looked at uh, Binghamton and Stony Brook, the two top SUNYs in the state. And I applied to both. Um, Stony asked for a midterm report, but by the time Stony got back to me, Binghamton had already accepted me. And Binghamton is the top public school in the state, so I went to Binghamton. And honestly, I thought I was going to stay there until possibly law school. You know, then I thought maybe I'll go to a top law school. But what ended up happening was I said, you know, midway through the first semester there, I still have that Ivy League itch. I still want to transfer to the big time. So I really, really dedicated myself to those first, that first semester at Binghamton especially. And then I took summer courses and did the full semester. And, uh, you know, just made all kinds of connections with the Cornell people and constantly went to, to meet with the counselors and constantly. Uh, I actually retook the SAT, which is something I didn't even know you could do, but I retook the SAT and my score went up like like 200 points. You know, so it was a very long road. In Joe, I've challenge. taken that. I took that about two, three times. So I, I don't uh, I don't blame you for trying to get it at a better score. So I, I get it. You can actually take it a couple times. But um. You know, and, and as you're talking about this journey, I'm thinking you're a conservative kid. So how did that influence your decision-making along the way, being a conservative on the college campus? Well, I would say it influenced it in a, in a couple of ways. Certainly in a, in a philosophical sense, I'm always big on responsibility, and I'm always big on, like, shooting for your goals. And that's not something that's exclusive to conservatism, but um, that's something that certainly influenced it. And then also in terms of, you know, freedom of speech is a big problem on college campuses. Uh, especially at Binghamton University. So there, there was an event, and at this point I had already decided I wanted to transfer to Cornell, so it wasn't like this, this event uh, inspired my transfer, but there was the college Republicans at Binghamton that set up a tabling event with a Donald Trump sign and with you know pro-Second Amendment things and anti-socialism things, and it was co-sponsored by the Turning Point USA chapter at Binghamton. And um, a bunch of protests, not even protesters, I would call them rioters, really horrible people. 200 of them showed up in a mob, flipped the table, tore the signs, got in people's faces. The video actually went viral. That's about, I don't even know, I think 350,000 views on YouTube on the Young America Foundation page. Mm. But, you know, people were crazy there, and there was no freedom of speech, and people yelling at us all these things, calling us all types of ridiculous assertions. And um, the following Monday, we had Art Laffer come to speak. 
And Art Laffer is a big econo- uh, economist. He's a big advisor to Donald Trump. He was an advisor even to Bill Clinton. Not a very controversial guy. He came, we had lunch with him, the college Republicans, and he was supposed to give a big speech. Of course, the protesters came, Antifa came with masks. They shut it down. Uh, someone tried to rush the front of the room. The cops arrested him. They had to run Art Laffer and us back out the, you know, the back door through uh, through the police to try to get us away from the rioters. Mm. And it's really something that was just chaotic and totally ridiculous. And it goes to show you, and this is something that I, Alex, I think this is very important. If take nothing else from this conversation for the listeners, take this: freedom of speech has always been a foundation of this country. Freedom of speech is under attack on college campuses mm-hmm. in a way that no one outside of college campuses could imagine. College campuses do not have a liberal bias. There's a difference between being a, a, a traditional liberal in the way that many old school Democrats are and being a leftist. Colleges are leftist. They say that free speech is violence. They say that free speech is hate speech. If you support the president, you're a white supremacist and you should be mm. shunned and you should be shot down and you shouldn't be allowed to speak. And it's really something that is a shame. And you have to be afraid to voice your opinions to your professors, to your you know, to your peers. You can wear a MAGA hat. If, if, even in Cornell, if you wear a MAGA hat, there's a good chance of getting ripped off your head. Well, I was going to say... ripping a hat off my head, but you know, for most people, that's the case. I was going to say, have you found any ease with this at Cornell, or is it the same kind of pressures and same kind of aggression that they show if a conservative was to come on campus? It seems to be better at Cornell. It seems, but it's hard to say because there hasn't been a controversial event like at Binghamton yet. Like at Binghamton, I didn't know how bad it was until that happened that weekend. That being said, at Cornell, there's an active political union. Um, where it's bipartisan and Republicans and Democrats come together. So I would say there's certainly, uh, at least among the political students who are really into politics, there's more of an attempt to bridge that gap. Uh, But you still have the crazies at Cornell. You have people that are walking through the library protesting, you know, to divest from oil and this and that. So there's still plenty of people that that are are troubled at Cornell, but I don't think it's as bad. Well, uh, and Joe Silverstein, just a little background. Tell us about why you, you know, your time as class president in your high school. I mean, this is also part of your journey. You were class president and you just, you, you took that and built it into a career in college now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, um, it, that was a big part of my life being class president. You know, for four years, I three years I was grade president and then the last year, senior year, I became school president. So that was a very big part of my life and I'm not going to get into, you know, the details of it too much because I don't want to bore the listeners but we accomplished a lot of things for the school and the school community. You know, after I left that, I went into radio. And then after I left radio, there was sort of that gap of, okay, like, what's the next thing? Um, and right now, that's being editor-in-chief of the Cornell Review, which happens to be the leading college conservative news publication in the United States. So that's a, a very exciting thing. Well, let's talk about that, because you, you sent me this link last night of the actual new new edition out. First of all, How's it going under quarantine? How are you guys able to publish it? What, what's what been the steps you take to keep it going during this time? Well, I have to say I'm very proud of the writers and of the staff of the Cornell Review because we've really had a good transition to online. We've been doing meetings via Zoom, and we've been meeting consistently, too. We've been meeting uh, mostly every week. Occasionally we'll skip a week because if there's not really a necessary reason to meet and everyone's sort of just working on their articles – and sometimes it's not necessary, but we've been very consistent, more consistent than a lot of the larger organizations. You know, we have uh, a team of about 15 to 20 people at the Cornell Review. There's large organizations that have 40 to 50 people um, that don't meet, you know, that don't meet at all. We've been managing to meet on Zoom very consistently, and we've been using, um, you know, Google Docs to, to share articles and edit with each other online. So it's been something that I have to give the team credit. It's been very good, and everyone's been a pleasure to work with, and, and so far it's going good on that end. And the interviews are going well. I know you have a big one. So how do you get the guests on, and how do you get uh, them interviewed as well during this time? Well, this interview that we just did with Michael Johns was very interesting. So Michael Johns is the national co-founder of the Tea Party movement. He's been on Fox News and uh, BBC and a lot of other channels. Uh, and he was actually speechwriter for George Bush and, a, and a, a, a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, too. So this one was a good one. 
Um, he actually happens to be, his son goes to the school and is a member of the college Republicans with us. So that's sort of how we set that one up. He followed us on Twitter and I sent the message and, you know, we went back and forth and it led to a nice interview. And he's really a great guy and a down-to-earth guy. Um, there's other people. I've had him on. I've had him on, and he's just so knowledgeable. Every time I have him on, it's really uh, a play. You know, it's refreshing. He's not wild. You know, crazy, right? And he's also not. You know, he's just he's down to earth, and he's very reasonable, and I love that about him. What I like about him is that he's an intellectual leader on the on the conservative right for the Tea Party. You know, and I don't. I don't. I agree with a lot of the things the conservatives in the Tea Party says. I try not to box myself into one ideology 100% because I think liberals raise great points and conservatives raise great points. But that being said, you know, there's been this sort of attempt to negatively brand conservatives as being stupid, stupid as being, you know, a bunch of horrible things by the media, by Democrats, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think when you see him, he disproves that because you see someone who's very conservative, but he's very intelligent, he's very informed, and he's really uh, a master at articulating many of the reasons why people support uh, conservatism and conservative ideas and the president, you know, and all those things. Well, so a couple things. First of all, obviously there was more to that paper that you just published. So what else is in the review that people can look forward to, and where can we find it? So you could find the review. The link to it is actually posted in the Instagram of the Cornell Review. So if you just look up Cornell Review on Instagram or you could look up Joe Silverstein on Instagram. And if you follow me, it's in my bio. Um, we have a website, thecornellreview.org, which we're currently in the process of, uh, of doing maintenance on because the predecessors to us did a really poor job. And I don't think we should really get into it. But they sure did a very negative job, so we'll leave it at that in terms of that situation. But we're fixing it. We're fixing the website. So you can visit the website, cornellreview.org. Um, follow us on Twitter, Cornell Review, and the links are all on social media. Um, so, so that's that. But in terms of other things that they could look forward to in the edition, it talks a lot about government overreach during this period. Um, you know, for example, shutting down gun stores and saying they're not essential. That's a big problem for people. Uh, it also talks about less polarizing issues. It talks about, for example, um, you know, strategic studies and military affairs. Because we have someone that's a veteran that is uh, very well-versed in these subjects. He writes about um, how the virus is affecting U.S. preparedness, uh, how Russia and Iran and others have been provocative during this time period, uh, you know, trying to get a reaction from the United States military, circling our ships and, and yeah. intercepting yep. our planes and all types of things. So, you know, it, it covers a lot of things, and it's really a diverse range of topics, topics it covers. Uh, and it's all types of writers from different backgrounds and, and coming from different perspectives. You know, one of the great things about it, we say the writer, the um, opinions of one writer doesn't necessarily reflect the opinions of the whole paper. So you could have the same issue, and you could have two different writers arguing two different sides of it. Well, uh, you've got this platform, right, uh, Joe? You've got this platform. And I want to know, because you just said a few minutes ago, you know, it's terrible on college campuses for, for free speech. And I got to know, how are you and your platform going to nationwide change people's mindsets and get people to think a little differently in the sense that uh, don't always react to, to conservatism? How are you guys changing the narrative on college campuses, not just in Cornell, but nationwide? I think that the problem with conservatism is that oftentimes it suffers from like a lack of branding and it suffers from a lack of explanation. And part of that is because conservatives don't have the opportunity to express themselves. I think that when you talk about conservatism, you want to focus a lot on personal responsibility because the left, especially on college campuses, especially in academia, is always promoting this, this narrative of the oppressor versus the oppressed and the victim versus the, you know, the person creating the victim. And there's really a lot of horrible left-wing Marxist ideology underlying the whole thing. Uh, and it's very prevalent in academia. This is not the fringes of academia. The mainstream of academia, you know, believes in intersectionality, believes in a lot of just really grotesque ideas and really just uh, disturbing ideas. So I think what you have to do is really push individualism and say, look, we should all be judged as individuals. And in some sense... 
the classical liberals and the, the modern-day conservatives have aligned on this because if you look at what the radical left says today, they're not talking about equality of opportunity. They're talking about equity and equality of outcome. And what we have to do is explain why equality of outcome is such a dangerous thing for society. Um, and I think that Republicans oftentimes fail in really explaining that, and and I think that they need to improve on that because, listen, we're only – Oh, we're always only a heartbeat away from the horrors of the 20th century. Mm. If you look at what happened with Stalin and with Lenin, and if you really study it, and if you look on Twitter at the Bernie Sanders supporters and the AOC supporters and the Liz Warren supporters, you'll see the same mentality that, I mean, I see people talking about, let's bring guillotines for the rich. You know, there's a lot of atrocious ideas on the left that really need to be exposed. And I think in some sense we could find allies in the classical liberals, the traditional liberals, who have been marginalized by the radical left, um, mm. by this woke culture that tries to deplatform people, that tries to get people, that hates the rich, that hates successful people, that tries to promote racial warfare in this country. You know, it's, it's something that has to be stood against, and I think the right and, you know, the Republicans could do a good job at that if they articulate their message properly. Now, the counterpoint would be, well, conservatives do that too. So what can conservatives do better to truly get a better message out on, on, on the right side of things? I don't, I don't know that conservatives do. I think some conservatives do. I think if you look at and I don't want to label Jordan Peterson as a conservative because he hasn't really come out and, um, and expressed his political views, but if you're familiar with the professor from, from Canada, Jordan Peterson, he speaks a lot about this. I think that the way you have to do it is you have to be willing to go on a lot of the liberal shows. You have to be willing to have the debates and the discussions with liberal professors. Um, you know, and I, I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously the conservative message is resonating to, mm -hmm. to some extent because Donald Trump is president, right? But I don't want to make it seem like it's not resonating and start with that premise. But I think that it's not necessarily resonating with young people. And part of that is because young people are young and, you know, a lot of them are naive, quite frankly. And when you get taught in your sociology class about how bad the country is, really, you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is, Alex. Tell me. They have, to, they have to take back the colleges because the colleges are what's promoting a lot of this uh, nonsense uh, identity politics, this nonsense, you know, HR department that goes on where, God forbid, someone says, you know, look at, look at what happened to Megyn Kelly at NBC. Mm. She, I think she made a stupid joke. But that's something somebody should be fired for and have their lives ruined. Meanwhile, meanwhile, CNN could just, you know, scrap an interview that Tara Reid's mom did about Biden. I mean, this is how crazy it is. Well, that's the other thing, too, right? And that's such an important topic. And I was going to actually touch on that next, is that if you look at what the media did to Brett Kavanaugh, we believe survivors, which, by the way, is a horrible premise to start from. Now, obviously, I mean, of course, it sh I shouldn't even have to say this. Obviously... Women should be taken seriously when they come forward with accusations, and obviously we shouldn't dismiss them. But that being said, to start with the premise of we believe all survivors, you're starting with the premise that a crime happened and that somebody, that the person they're accusing is guilty. That's a ridiculous premise to start from. What happened to the just judicial system? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? These are things that this country was built on, mm. that classical liberals used to stand for. And now all of a sudden, the radical left is weaponizing things. Look at Brett Kavanaugh. There was no record. There was no people at the time that said it happened. She didn't know a date. She didn't know where. And the media ran with it for three weeks. And, and it turned out, it came out later, actually, that the lawyer was suing it for abortion rights. If you caught that Just... on videos, you talked about, oh, maybe this yep. is for abortions. Which I, I don't actually use the term abortion rights. I use the term genocide in a lot of cases because that's what it is. Um, but that being said, I mean, if you look at that and then you compare it to Biden where and I'm not saying Biden is guilty. We don't know. But listen, you reap what you sow. And this is the world that Biden has created and, and you know, and has contributed to where all men are immediately guilty the second mm. they're accused of something. He has to live with it then. But if you look at the way that CNN has buried it, they don't even want to show their own interview. That happened on CNN, the interview. If you look at the New York Times and the Biden campaign asked them to edit the article and they edited the article. And this is documented. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is documented on Fox News and on very news sources. And even the New York Times admitted to doing it in a statement. So, you know, if you look at that and the way it's been treated versus the way Trump accusers or Kavanaugh uh, accusers are treated, they're, they're sweeping this lady under the rug because they hate Trump so much. Well, that is true. And actually, I saw the Times comment. We are not going to 
go further with this because we didn't find anything beyond, you know, uncomfortable things that made women uncomfortable. It's like you shouldn't go beyond, you know, you shouldn't just dismiss that. You know, the New York Times looked very bad, uh, very bad in that situation. Now, let me ask you this, because I've started to feel like this lockdown is is out of the people's hands. And I think it should be in the people's hands. Like if Cuomo wants to do this again for this next upcoming month, wouldn't you say an election would be better? Like to say, Hey, can we vote on actually keeping us open or close or, or letting it close and not let him decide? What, what do you think of that idea? Well, I think it's certainly an interesting idea. I don't necessarily support it because I think that at the same time, you know, there are governors and, and government people that are elected, you know, by us and we're unhappy with the job uh, that they do. We could just, you know, not reelect them. But I think it's a good idea to some extent. Like I certainly agree with the sentiment of it that, um, that this is a problem, what's happening. I mean, if you look at, in California, somebody got arrested for being in a boat in a creek by themselves in a lake, you know, I mean, which is crazy. Uh, they're closing down. They're not letting churches do drive-through services, not masses, but drive-through services. Um, they tried to close down gun stores in New York, and I'm not sure whether or not they are still closed. So there's been a lot of overreach here, and there's been a lot of big government overreach. At the same time, I think that the lockdown is important because we have to slow the spread. Sure. So I think that certain things like that shouldn't necessarily be left to public opinion, but they should be left to the public health experts. But I think that within the, with that, within the realm of the quarantine, um, certainly there's a lot of constitutional problems that need to be addressed. I think the other thing, too, is we're going to have to have an honest conversation about when do we want to reopen the economy and the government? Because this argument that, oh, if we could just save one life, you know, it sounds good, but it's the cheapest argument you could make, because if you could just save one life, and that's the principle you're going to operate based on, then you wouldn't have people driving cars, you wouldn't have people flying in planes, you would just shut down the world all the time. So that's like a horrible metric to do, so that's the first problem. And then the second problem is, too, I've been seeing, and this goes back to our conversation we just had about the radical left, I've been seeing posts from friends and people on Facebook and just random people saying, oh, the rich want us to go back to work, and it shows that we're nothing but labor to them. Uh, they get to sit in their mansions while we have to go risk our lives, uh, get the guillotines ready, and all types of crazy idiots on Twitter. And it's like, do you realize it's not going to be the rich people standing in bread lines if this continues? It's going to be the working people. People are losing their small businesses. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their livelihood. This isn't about all the rich wants to go back to work. It's the middle class and the working class that's suffering the most. Well, it is, and of course... The, the small business stuff, I, I don't know what is is exactly going on there. It sounds like some companies should be should not be getting it, but they are. I don't know. It's all a mess what's going on with that whole thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Harvard got and I think Harvard had to return the money, but in terms of the actual small business loan program, I was listening to the Dan Crenshaw podcast uh, about a week ago, maybe four or five days ago, and he had explained what happened and basically – Pelosi, and Dan Crenshaw is an honorable guy. He's a, he's a Republican, of course, he's partisan to some extent, but this is a Navy SEAL who lost his eye fighting for this country. This is an honorable guy. And Dan Crenshaw explained they had a deal with Pelosi. Pelosi agreed to it. That was on a Friday. They came back that Monday, and Pelosi came back with all types of Green New Deal things and things that weren't in the deal because she was pressured by the radical left, AOC mm. plus three. She was pressured by them in her party. So, you know, it's, it's something that really goes to show you. Uh, Nancy Pelosi killed a lot of small businesses. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez killed a lot of the small the small businesses because they held up the funding for their left-wing ideas that didn't get put in the bill anyway in a lot of cases. AOC and, said uh, don't even go back to work. How crazy is that, right? Well, well that, that's the other thing, too. And just to finish with the last point real quick, so they held up the funding at last. It should have been done a week before it got done, the extra funding. It waited a week. Within that week, small businesses went under within that week. So that's just important to note. But that being said, yeah, no, they want to rebuild, to your point about AOC, they want to rebuild society in their image now. They want to work towards creating that utopian society that they've been longing for for so long. So, I mean, it's really ridiculous to see. Uh, and you know the phrase, never waste a crisis, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. That was from the Obama administration. So that's what they're acting on. And it's really disgusting, to be honest with you. And they should be ashamed of themselves. I just want to um, correct or ask one thing. You just said utopian. I think you meant dystopian, right? I mean, this would be dystopian if we didn't go back to work. Oh, well, it, it certainly is dystopian in reality, but they look at it as a utopia. Right. Wow, that is you know, so, so true. I'm not saying, obviously, I'm not saying 
like she said, oh, working, we shouldn't go back to working 70 hours a week. You know, she wants to take all the money from the rich, and I'm no Jeff Bezos fan, by the way, because I think Jeff has his own problems uh, with the Washington Post and other things. But Amazon provides a great service to people, and AOC hates Amazon, and she talks about a billionaire shouldn't exist, and no one should have that much money. But you know what? You know how long a Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, a John Casmadidi, you know how long those people work, how many right. hours those people work right. to build that fortune? And you think that AOC, you think 70 hours of working is a lot to them? Why should someone work their entire life? Why should I work my entire life and get a, uh, an Ivy League degree and go on and work really hard? And really, I mean, people can't handle the pressure of, of a John Casmadidi's, of an Elon Musk, of a Jeff Bezos. Why should they work so hard? And then the government takes their fortune away. And that goes back to the idea that the radical left hates success. It's not even about wealth. Mm. They hate success. They hate, because the radical left, a lot of them, the AOCs, they hate the conditions of their own existence. And they want to put, put that on society and put that on the most successful within society. It's really a sick ideology. Well, let me ask you this then, a couple of things. Uh, how is it then that these people who have so much... Who, who are advocating just never open up again. How are they getting regular, everyday people to agree with that narrative? I don't understand that. Well, it's, I wish I could answer that. Obviously, their message resonates to some extent because it's easier to give the chief, like, two-sentence, oh, we could just save one life. It's easier to say that than to actually put forward a policy, you know, suggestion or a debate. So some of it's the simplicity of their arguments. The other thing, too, that you have to keep in mind, um, you know, AOC is in Congress. AOC is still getting paid. Nancy Pelosi is still getting a paycheck. If you were to freeze the congressional paycheck, I think it would start moving a lot more quickly. <laughs> I think it would move a lot, lot more quicker. Uh, you just mentioned Harvard. Uh, and by the way, people have been advocating that, too, to, to freeze their checks if they don't get us it on time. Um, but to, um, to your point on Harvard, I've got to ask you this. When you see them putting out a study of 2022 being the, the best time we can do, so re, we can stop social distancing or whatever, when you see them put a study out like that and then they take $9 million, I mean, doesn't that make you sick as a fellow Ivy Leaguer? Like, why is this Ivy League school getting the money, not only that, but promoting a study that says we should be locked in another couple of years? Well, I think the first thing to the first part of that, if you were to lock down the global economy for another two years, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying stop social distancing tomorrow. So let's, I right, I'm not either. Point, it, no, and I understand that, but people are going to take this conversation and manipulate the conversation to make it sound like we're saying no social distancing and open everything up now. Like, that's not what I'm saying. You know, you're still going to have to be careful. You're still going to have to wear masks. I'm not saying a place like New York should rush to open up right away. But what I'm saying is you're going to have to start opening up the economy. And the reason is if you wait until 2022 to open up the economy, you're not going to have a country left. You're going to see hunger and despair like mm. you've never seen, worse than the Great Depression. You can't just freeze the global economy for two and a half years and expect that things are going to be normal. Already you see the supply chain that they're having to kill you know, animals in the farms because they don't have enough demand for them and they have an excess and they have to kill the animals and the workers in the meat factories are getting sick. 17 people in meat factories have died, died already and now they're closing down certain meat factories. You're going to start, start to see societal uh, deterioration like you haven't seen before. It's like something we've never seen in our lives. And you have to be careful for that. So people are going to die if you continue this shutdown as well. So we have to be really honest about this. Well, and then to the second point about Harvard, because I, I, I don't want to forget that point, um, I think that, you know, I read also an interesting study from, or not a study, I read an article in the New York Times from the president of Brown University, another Ivy League school, and the president of Brown said, oh, well, the universities depend on the tuition, and a lot of them are already struggling economically. With historically high costs of college, why should the universities be struggling economically to begin with? That sounds like that's a microeconomic problem. That's not our problem to solve the society mm. because they were advocating for reopening the universities before. Which actually, if you want a prediction, I think that's the one thing that'll stay closed and stay online is the universities. How are you going to make kids go and share showers with the whole hallway? I don't see that happening. But in terms of in terms of the Harvard situation, though, I think it's really something that's ridiculous. And perhaps if they're worried about their bottom line, perhaps they should cut funding to certain 
uh, areas in certain academic fields that have produced garbage for the last three decades. Mm. You know, if you look at the gender studies that teach you nonsense about the patriarchy that doesn't exist, and if you look at a lot of these different uh, departments that teach you to hate this country, that teach you to hate your fellow Americans, um, maybe those should be looked at being defunded. Because I don't think, I don't think, and I got into a Facebook debate over toxic masculinity um, with one of my cousins, actually. And I said to her, I said, you know something? All the feminist literature in the world wouldn't save us if we got into another war. So imagine ripping someone, imagine if you had to have a war government, you had to have a draft, and you had to rip the young men out of the gender studies classrooms. You think we would win that war? You think we're tough like we used to be tough in this country? You know, there's a lot of weakness in this country. The, there is, and we have to um, we have to stay strong. That's the thing. And I, I got to ask one more thing. So, this president, as a journalist now, with the edit, as editor in chief of Cornell Review, you obviously want freedom of the press. Um, but do you agree or disagree that President Trump could be ending his briefings this week? What are your thoughts on that? I think he'll probably go back to doing the briefings. I think he should go back to doing the briefings, but perhaps maybe wait a couple of days because let them want, you know, let them want it, let them miss it, let them miss the ratings. Um, you know, and I think that he does a good job in the briefings because there's a lot of misinformation that the press does that has to be addressed and he calls them out on it. Of course, I think there's certain things that he says that turn out maybe not to be true, and I think there's things that he should avoid talking about. Like, for example, a lot of the medical um, issues, I think he should probably leave it to the doctors because he's really just stepping in a landmine with that. Um, you know, but that being said, like, even Dr. Deborah Burke said on CNN yesterday, because the media's been running with this UV and the disinfectant comments now for the last four days. Here's my position. I don't have to defend everything the president says. I've supported President Trump since he announced his campaign on June 14th of 2015 when he came down the escalator. When everyone else was on the Ted Cruz bandwagon and everyone was talking about Jeb Bush and a lot of the elites, a lot of the local politicians that you see now all of a sudden that are so in love with Trump were supporting other people, I was there supporting Trump from the beginning. So I'm a big Trump supporter, but I don't have to defend everything that Trump says. I think he made a, you know, a comment that was a little bit of a stupid comment. But you know what? It's it's one comment. That's it. You get over it. Everyone lets it pass, and it shouldn't be focused on for four days when there's plenty of actual content and actual good things that he's doing and the administration is doing. No reason to harp on it like this. It's ridiculous. Well, and, it and, away from, and especially I was when— I going to say really quick, it takes away from information that people could be knowing. Like, for example, now uh, some scientists are reporting that it's causing blood clotting in younger patients. Uh, you know, that's been reported. So there's a lot of valuable information that could be getting out to people. And instead, they're wasting half the news cycle on a nonsense comment. Why don't they talk about the five million tests? Why don't they talk about all the good things that the Trump administration has been doing? Well, and why don't they also talk about that we are still probably going to be in better shape. This was according to Dr. Dennis Durello was on my show on Friday, in better shape than Italy. I'm like, are you kidding me? We're still going to be in good shape despite all this. And it's true. We are not. Our numbers are not globally catastrophic compared to some of the other countries and i have to say that's probably because trump shut down immigrate you know travel pretty quickly when he found out that this thing was spreading well i agree with that a hundred percent and the other thing as well is that you know the federal government not donald trump the federal government for decades has been unprepared for a crisis of this magnitude so to blame that on the current president is disingenuous it's dishonest so, you know, yes, the CDC could have improved uh, testing capabilities, but no one could have saw this coming. And this is something that has been lingering for the last 15, 20 years. This is a new to Donald Trump. So if you want to put the blame on Trump, you also have to put the blame on President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton. So people are doing a lot of simplifications and a lot of things to really just try to put this on Trump in an unfair way. Uh, and yeah, the travel bans, you know, Biden said they were xenophobic, the Democrats said they were xenophobic, and then they tried to say they didn't say that. And then ironically, now Trump came out and banned, I think, green cards, it was, he stopped the green cards, right. and they said that that was xenophobic. You know, so they're flip-flopping again. It, it's a very interesting thing, but, you know, Trump's been treated very unfairly throughout it. I'm what? not saying the response has been perfect, but, you know, Trump's done a damn good job. And to go from... Uh, two years of a Russian witch hunt that turned out to be fake, to then the impeachment hoax, and then nonsense claims about the 25th Amendment. 
Uh, and then finally, everything calms down and everything's going great. The economy's going good. You think maybe he'll have a, a nice little time. And then this hits him. You know, I feel well, bad for the guy. That's a tough <clears throat> situation to be in. Yeah. Hey, you know, you make an interesting point about the Russia stuff. So everybody a couple of weeks last week was upset when he wanted to cut the WHO funding, right? The World Health Organization. And to me, it's like, all right, well, it's true. They didn't uh, help us out with the whole notification of this disease. But Joe, Joey, uh, Joey, Joe, uh, if you notice this weekend, Russia now has come out in support of the WHO. So you've got China and Russia supporting them and people saying we shouldn't cut the funding. That's like, well, you just tried to get him on Russia collusion. Now you're taking the same stance as Russia. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see the problem of defending WHO? Because the only two countries I'm seeing defend them is Russia and China, our enemies. So you're basically siding with them in this whole funding battle. Well, absolutely. China bought out the WHO when they put one of the guys from one of their territories, one of the states that they dumped loads of money into, because that's part of their political strategy on the international, uh, you know, on the international team. China picked the head of the WHO. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, you know, so I think that Trump is right to defund the WHO. I think let's put the money into the CDC instead. It's really something that's just totally ridiculous. And if you look at what China's been doing, let's be honest here. This most likely was created in a lab by China, and it probably escaped accidentally. Um, that's what I suspect is the main thing. But for people, people are siding with the Chinese government over the president of the United States. China, the Communist Party of China, throughout the Washington uh, Post, throughout the Wall Street Journal, throughout the New York Times, throughout all the free press out of the country when this was going on, you didn't hear a peep about it. There's been no effort to hold the Chinese government accountable. Uh, now, you know, now they're starting to do things in terms of agriculture. They're buying soybeans from other countries instead of from here, and it looks like they may not even uphold the trade deal. China is doing everything they can to take advantage of this situation. They're increasing their military, uh, you know, activity in disputed regions. Mm. So let's not pretend that China is this great ally. You know, so you see people acting like calling out China is the same as, you know, they try to compare to attacking Asian Americans, and that's such a ridiculous jump to make. Mm. That's such a ridiculous jump to make that it's really ridiculous, and it goes to show you how stupid some of the people are. Uh, in terms of the left wing. Hey, Joe, really quickly, Joe Silverstein, Silverstein USA on Twitter, at Joe Silverstein on Instagram, Cornell Review, also on Twitter at Cornell Review. Uh, how is How can Cornell students listening to this today um, be helped if they're not being, uh, you know, with classes or any issues? What What's Cornell doing to supplement this whole lockdown? How are they helping you guys out? And how about you guys? Any any resources aside from the paper itself that you guys are offering during this time at Cornell Review? Well, I mean, certainly anyone could reach out to us if they have any questions about school or, or something to that effect or if they just want to talk and we could get back to them. In terms of any institutional things, we really don't have access to, to much to provide. But, I mean, we certainly offer, you know, information during this time, I suppose you could say. And we, we actually want to start doing, too, a, a series, a section of the newspaper called, like, Stories of Hope about, like, people persevering through this pandemic. So that's something we're looking to incorporate into the paper as well. And uh, I mentioned to you off the air, we're looking to do a podcast and a couple of other things. So it, it's going to be interesting. We'll see what happens. Do keep us posted. Joe Silverstein, the editor-in-chief of the Cornell Review. My goodness, I remember when he was on... As a you know, post high school kid doing radio, having the blast of time of his life. Now he's making an impact even more. So congratulations, Joe, on your journey, and and keep us posted on what's up next. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure, and everyone stay safe, stay strong.
strong. We're going to get through this. And uh, God bless you. God bless the listeners. And God bless this country. Amen to that. I'm Alexander Garrett. We will talk to you tomorrow. Should be fun. Another round of we'll have to see. Talk to you soon.